2, Seven Heads, Ten Horns, with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history of the devil. I am Klaus Yoder, your wild-eyed host, and with me, as always, is Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you doing today? Um, I would say that I'm cold, but it seems rude to complain about that, seeing as how I'm in Northern California and you're in um, New York State, which, yeah, yeah that's a, which is a result of your own life choices, so I, I, yeah, I don't feel... Yeah. I don't feel super bad about it, but I do feel a little bit bad about complaining. So I'm not going to. And instead, I'm going to share how excited I am because we have a very special guest today. Um, He is an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and it is Dr. Akash Kumar. Akash, welcome to the show. We're so glad that you're here. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Yay. This is awesome. Yeah, we, we've sort of like slipped out of doing things in chronological order. So I, I've been doing Faust all over the place. So we can jump back to the, you know, the, the 13, 14 centuries now, too. So it's all good. Absolutely. Yeah, we're not um, we're not tyrannical when it comes to our, you know, chronological history of the devil. We we have a, you know, we follow the passion. We follow the uh, opportunity. And um, I would also like to share that. In addition to being a fancy professor um, like Klaus, Akash is also my neighbor, which is super cool. So if I have any questions about Dante, the rest of you don't have um, an expert living across the hall from you. But at any time, I can just like knock on his door. Just and be knock like, on hey. the door. Yeah. So um, I would just I'm just bragging at this point. Um, but I thought we'd start by my talking just a little bit about who Dante was slash is um and then i will invite a little bit of a conversation about that before we continue so dante alighieri was we think we think born in the kind of mid 13th century around 1265 and he was born he grew up in florence and has this really complicated relationship with florence he gets exiled at one point he writes the commedia from exile which is interesting um there's also i want to mention his idealized love figure who actually was a historical person um beatrice beatrice right um supposedly he falls in love with her at first sight when he's like a child or when she's a child which is awkward um so i'm just gonna let that be awkward he goes on later to you know it's it's medieval Italy, so you don't love matches are not the norm, right? So, uh, at least in his social class, he is he has an arranged marriage to another family. Perhaps his family thinks is like a little too big for their britches that they're like, you know, well, this is like super that, that you marry someone from the Donati family is like super important. But anyway, that's what happens. Gemma Donati becomes his wife. We don't really know where he was educated, but he was certainly well read in some of the classics. So Ovid. Uh, Cicero, Virgil, especially Virgil's going to play a big part in the in the com- Divine Comedy, as well as the Tuscan poets. Um, fortunately, Akash knows all about the t- the Tuscan poets. I do. I know nothing, and he also read and even wrote part of the Commedia in Occitan. Super exciting for all of you fans of obscure rom- romance languages like me. Fun fact: I took a class 
like a reading group um, in grad school in Occitan literature. And it was so purdy, like I had no idea, um, but it's just a lovely language. It's the language um, that was native to the south of France in this time period. And it's the language uh, famously of troubadour poetry. Um, so I'm super curious about Florence and Florence's ongoing relationship with Dante into the 2000s, right? So they exile him, as I've already mentioned, and then um, he gets buried in Ravenna, I think. And then, he, but, but he had been fined. In order to return to Florence during his lifetime, they were like, you have to pay this huge hefty fine and be like, I'm so sorry that I offended the honor of, you know, the city-state of, of, of Florence. Um, but in the early 2000s, <laughs> Florence was like, this is a thing that we're going to do. We're going to lift your fine, even though you're dead and have been dead for a very long time. So I'm curious, what is our take on that? Was it, and because the, they wanted his body back, returned to the city that is, you know, his homeland, even though they, they, they did him dirty, in my view. Was this a day late and a lira, euro, insert proper coinage here, short? What do we think, people? What do we think? <laughs> Yeah, it's really funny. So we were just coming off of the 700th anniversary of Dante's death, 1321 to 2021. So there have been all sorts of celebrations in Italy and around the world commemorating that. And and there have been all sorts of apologies. And Florence still wants the body back, still wants the bones back. And it's always been this kind of back and forth between Florence and Ravenna. So there's a tomb of Dante in Florence. There's nothing in it. And it's just, it's one of those things that of course they feel bad for it now, but you know, it's too late. <laughs> um, that is my vote as well. I'm wondering if there are any other sort of relevant biographical um, details that we want to mention. There's lots of literature out there. There were important, are, were there contemporary biographies? I actually don't know. I know that there were a couple after, there were many after he died, obviously, but I don't know about how close our sources. Um, so I wonder, Akash, if you could tell us a little more about the sources of, of what we know about him. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Dante himself wanted to uh, have people view his life in a certain way. So he, he did his own autobiography called The Vita Nuova. That's the love the kind of love story between him and Beatrice, right? Um, and and it's, it's actually kind of a collection of poetry. So there's a prose kind of narrative, but it's accompanied by uh, poems that he wrote uh, as, as a young man. Uh, some of them were about Beatrice, for Beatrice. Some of them weren't, but he reinterpreted all of them to make them all kind of fit into the, the love story that he wanted to tell. So that's a little bit of autobiography in the 1290s before he was exiled that he did himself. Uh, and then, of course, there's plenty of autobiography in the Divine Comedy, uh, that you know we can we can think about and talk about, but we don't actually know a whole lot about you know the stuff of his life. We know some things when he was born, and he didn't have any university education. He married Gemma Donati, as you said, uh, and then a lot of a lot of speculation has been running rampant ever since. Um, and people started after he died, uh, after the Divine Comedy became a big hit, people started to tell the story of his life. So Giovanni Boccaccio uh, is one of those people who wrote a really early life of Dante. And then there were people in the Renaissance who did that. And there are people in the here and now in the 21st century that still write lives of Dante. Are you going to write one or are you going to write an autobiography 
up to up until now, which is how autobiographies are written. In case anyone was curious, you don't get to write <laughs> after you're dead. So just like this thought is I'd true. Clue everyone to that big. Um, yeah, I, I am definitely here. not writing one. Okay. Uh, for for me, like the the life is important. It's it's interesting, but it's not actually what draws me into the poetry. Um, he he lived his life. He did his thing. I'm much more interested in the text than in the person. What an amazing transition, um, Klaus. What is this? What is this literature that he is talking about? Dante wrote things. Tell us everything. So, yeah, he wrote a lot of things. Uh, the thing that we're talking about today as the podcast History of the Devil is the Divine Comedy, which includes a you know part of the trilogy on, on hell, the Inferno. There's a part on Purgatory. There's a part on Paradise. So Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. Yeah, so that's the, the, big, the big work. I mean, there's obviously other contenders for admiration. Dante did political theory and wrote about wrote like literary theory essentially about vernacular languages but this is the this is the, the this is the big monumental text that uh you know random 18 year olds like me in Pennsylvania were forced to read in college for a humanities intro class you know so it it carries that kind of it has that kind of heft to it and I know I teach this text and uh, I tell my students we're going to be reading from the Divine Comedy. And they're like, does that star Adam Sandler? Like, what's what's the comedy part of this whole thing? Is this a question I get? I get a lot. Um, but yeah, it's lyric poetry. It's it's I mean, it, it sounds great even in translation. Uh, Italian's not one of my languages, but, it, you know, I can only imagine. But it's written in terzo rimo. Um, so like, I guess, interlocking rhymed uh, triplets between the lines. Maybe uh, Akash, you can explain that the technicalities of that a little bit more. And it's uh, seen as one of these like landmarks in terms of establishing what modern Italian would be. So we're moving into a period, the sort of the the, uh, the flourishing of vernacular languages from the sort of late medieval through uh, early modern periods. Yeah, I mean that's that's what we got here. We have this this epic comedy of of a of the pilgrim. People, my students call would identify with Dante. I'm not really sure what the proper conventions are around that, but of a pilgrim's journey through hell, up through purgatory, up another place we haven't really discussed too much on the podcast. Um, we're not we're more into people than places, so this is like a good change of pace. But yeah, then it, it ends with with uh, with paradise. How important, I guess, Akash, for you and for uh, scholars in the field is the identification of the divine comedy with the beginning of modern Italian. Like, is that, uh, is that like a sort of outdated nationalist sort of narrative? Is that something that, that holds any water? Like what's, what's your, what's your view on that right now? Yeah, I would definitely say it's, it's uh, a little anachronistic to say that it's the beginning of modern Italian. I mean, Dante was writing in his mother tongue, but Tuscan is not the same as, as modernized Italian. Um, it, it becomes that, right? So Tuscan ends up kind of winning the battle of dialects that are running all around the Italian peninsula and on the islands. And uh, because of the, the fame of Dante and, and people after him, like Boccaccio and Petrarch, uh, Tuscan ended up being the literary language of choice and ended up being kind of regularized in some way uh, as, as modern Italian. But at the end of the day, uh, if you read the Divine Comedy, it's not it's not even just Tuscan. As as Travis said earlier, uh, there there is a portion in which Dante writes in Occitan. Uh, he's he's experimenting with Hebrew and well with Latin and uh, and Greek and and you know little bits of Arabic in some ways. And so it's it's a really mixed composite language, and that's what he's really 
talking about when he calls his work comedy. Uh, it's about mixed style. It's not, it's not just the, the high-flown tragedy of Virgilian or Homeric epic. Um, it's down in, down in the stuff of, of real life and, and profoundly mixed. Some of it's going to be really high-flown. Some of it's going to be talking about shits and fucks. And uh, that's what makes the Divine Comedy so kind of special. Um, so he invented, as you said, uh, the meter that he wrote the Divine Comedy in, Terza Rima, uh, specifically for the writing of it. So it is lyric poetry, but it's also epic in its scope. And it's a big deal that he chose to write it in uh, Tuscan as opposed to Latin. He, he wanted to write something that was going to be looked at in the way that the Bible was looked at, in the way that classical epics like Virgil's Aeneid were looked at but he chose to do it in, in the mother tongue. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially considering that Latin would have sort of had, I mean, maybe this is a false assumption, but a wider reach across Europe. I mean, I know, you know, the, the different languages like Occitan or, or Tuscan were not just confined to the, the, the boot, but, um, but yeah, like Latin to me would seem like you could, you could be hitting Scandinavia with that, you know, but he, he directed it more, more, uh, you know, in a Southern direction. So that's, that's really interesting to, to, to note. Yeah. Um, the other thing to, to sort of talk about here, I think, at the, the beginning is uh, the structure of the whole comedy. There we have like these very sort of Christian and in terms of purgatory, sort of Catholic sorts of sacred spaces or dimensions of of the universe. So we have like a move through through space. And we also have a concept that seems to be like the Cliff Notes version of Dante, which is uh, contrapasso or the idea of a kind of poetic justice to the various stages of of these of these spaces in the journey so what can we what like what what do you think the reader should know about how this whole thing is is arranged in terms of its macro structure akash yeah so i mean it, it's really you know dante wasn't the only one writing this kind of afterlife vision there it was a, a medieval genre uh so he's and actually, by the time Dante's writing this in the 14th century, it was kind of a, you know, been there, done that sort of generic convention. Uh, but he does it, he does it really, really differently. Um, Dante's poem is far more elaborate than, than a lot of other medieval precedents that we can look to and point to uh, in the visionary tradition. Um, it's, it's just really incredibly uh, thought out and, and structured and organized and uh, so we have uh, even just kind of the system of crime and punishment, uh, the contrapasso that you that you mentioned. Um, that word uh, means kind of counterstep, counter penalty. Uh, so we read along Inferno, and we don't actually get that word uh, until Inferno twenty eight. So there there are thirty four cantos in Inferno. It's broken up in these you know hundred twenty to hundred fifty line. Uh, units called cantos, and we don't, we don't, we get to Inferno twenty-eight at the end of the canto. Finally, we're almost at the end of Inferno, and and that's when we get introduced to this term contrapasso, and that's kind of what Dante is doing as a as a poet, as a narrator. He's pulling us into this world that he's creating, and he's not, uh, he's he's showing, not telling. Uh, he he's very good. He's a master kind of manipulator in that regard, and just getting us to. To, to see this stuff, to, to experience it, and, uh, and figure it out for ourselves. Um, so the system of crime and punishment is, you know, how uh, is contrapasso, and so you have uh, specific uh, notions, such as, say, the, the circle of lust, uh, and the punishment for lust is 
something like a, an externalized metaphor. So the, the lustful are blown about uh, by the wind and they have no control uh, over where they go and how they go. Uh, and that's, that's kind of literalizing the metaphor of seeding uh, control, seeding uh, your, your, your reason to the rule of passion, to the rule of desire. Uh, and that's not something that uh, other medieval thinkers, other, other uh, visions uh, in this period were, were really doing. When they were uh, treating something like lust, they were going much more graphic and sexual with it. And, and you know, genital mutilation was featuring uh, in, in some of these uh, visions. Um, that's not what Dante's interest is. Um, and at the end of the day, his, his uh, real innovation in this genre is structuring his hell, not according to uh, Christian ethics purely, but actually bringing in Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics as the basis uh, for his hell, uh, so that virtue is defined as being in the middle uh, of these two extremes on either side. Uh, and that's just not a very Christian notion, right? I mean, in, in kind of uh, Christian morality, you have this idea of virtue at one extreme and vice at the other extreme. And we're not, we're not really thinking about the middle ground so much. So Aristotelian ethics is as something that Dante is, is using to always think about uh, the, the moral issues that he's, that he's raising throughout uh, his vision is, is really, it's really quite something. It seems like there's an irony to that, too, because so much of how uh, hell is imagined across discourse is, is really shaped by the inferno. And to have the whole thing actually not be, and, you know, obviously I, I use these words like, you know, with some qualification, but like purely Christian is, is sort of an interesting feature and irony to that. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, I think it's really important to point out. The other thing is that in, in ways we see classical culture is, is, uh, something we'll talk about a little bit down below, but like just the, the proliferation of, of, uh, historical figures from antiquity, but also mythological figures, especially with the monsters. So we have a very mixed up, um, sort of set of universe, like sort of crossover, like it's, it's like a DC Marvel crossover going on in terms of these, these, these storylines. And uh, you see that later. And I think you see this influence on Milton who does a lot of the same things in terms of incorporating classical uh, figures. But yeah, I don't know, like was, would that have been viewed as controversial or was that sort of just part of what was done and in, in fashion? Yeah, so it's, it's, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, there was something in the air, so to speak, uh, right? We are, I mean, Dante is late medieval. We're, we're getting towards the, the, the flowering of, of culture that is the Renaissance that was very oriented towards taking back uh, classical culture, right? Going back to the Greco-Roman roots and really, really emphasizing that over uh, Catholicism in some ways. Um, so Dante is kind of part of that movement, right? We, we call him a proto-humanist sometimes because of that. Um, but he's, al he's always kind of interested in going back to, to, to the classics. And he's also interested in thinking about the value of non-Christian culture, not just in terms of, of uh, the Greco-Roman tradition, but also we've got, you know, Muslims in a place of honor in hell. And that's not something that we would necessarily expect. It's not it is messy and mixed up, as you say, and it's it's all kind of part of Dante's unique quality uh, of just really wanting to uh, not just do this in, in really straightforward, moralizing, scholastic Christian fashion.
Well, I wonder if we wanted to jump a little bit into some key moments in the text uh, to kind of give teeth to the more general conversation we've been having about um, about the Divine Comedy and about Inferno in particular. And the first uh, and maybe most exciting, should we be starting here? Let's leave. Let's throw caution to the wind that might be blowing around the lustful, and go ahead and start with the what some readers have historically referred to as the vestibule of hell. Can you orient us a little bit, Akash, to this this region? Are we in hell? Are we not yet in hell? We've passed the gates, but are we really there yet? Um, what is your view here? We're going to start there, and then I want to talk about angels first and this like really interesting mix of angels and humans um, that are residing in part of this kind of yeah, vestibule absolutely. Area. So you know, one one of the things that's really uh, fascinating about Dante is that he he, he really likes to uh, to complicate things. So we we start out in Inferno three. We we go through the gate. There's an inscription that's really really famous. Abandon all hope, you who enter here is probably the most famous line of the Divine Comedy that gets quoted all over the place in various fashions. The, my favorite that I've encountered is uh, it being inscribed uh, in Italian, Lasciate ogni speranza voi che entrate, uh, inscribed above a Columbia University frat house. Uh, I think there's something particularly apt about that usage. Uh, so we, we go through the gate, but are we in hell? Are we not in hell? That uh, is just really interested in in complicating matters. He he doesn't want it to be cut and dry. And so there's going to be some kind of ambiguity. There's going to be some kind of uh, uh, differentiating that, that happens uh, where we have to start kind of thinking about what the rules are of this place and are we in or are we out and, and how do we think about the individuals that we're encountering here. Um, so it's not hell proper. It kind of is. It kind of isn't. It's part of the... the, the uh, you know, geological space that we're that we're starting to to go into. We're below the surface of the earth, but there's something different about uh, the individuals that we're encountering here. Oh boy! Okay, I'm super excited. So, who's here? The big reveal. So we have the souls of humans who committed themselves neither to good nor to evil. They're just these wishy-washy people, and they are commingled in this group with. The angels who didn't side with God, but also didn't side with Lucifer in the great war before time began um, in the, in the heavens. Um, but these angels were quote unquote for themselves. Um, this is going to go really well. Um, I should make Akash do this, but here goes. Quel cattivo coro degli angeli, angeli che non furon ribelli né for fedeli a Dio. Ma per se foro, the wicked angels, the company of those who were not rebellious or faithful to God, but who were for themselves on their own side, if you will. Um, what is going on? I've yeah, never heard. There's of this. a reason for that. Um, this, like, didn't every didn't everyone take a side, Akash? Tell <laughs> we, me everything. We might have thought they did, but here's here's Dante inventing a myth. I mean, here's Dante inserting himself into a religious tradition, doing it for a really specific reason, because he's interested in this problem of neutrality, of being only for yourself, of, of being uncommitted, uh, and not picking a side when, when he feels that you absolutely do need to be picking a side in life. So he creates this theological precedent where there wasn't one before. He comes up with this idea of this 
third group of angels who didn't pick a side in the war of heaven and he uses it to then put individuals in this vestibule the space that he also created out of out of nothing out of not a whole lot of precedent there uh and 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 he goes his own way uh and he wants to, he wants us to kind of think about these people who don't get named that's part of their punishment they're not worth naming they're not worth remembering in any particular way uh and and he wants us to think about these individuals who refuse to pick a side in life and are therefore forced to pick a side in death Okay, I have many questions. One, it seems like in the architecture of this afterlife, there were many options about if you wanted to talk about really either the angels or the people who are like the angels, there were kind of other places to put them. I'm thinking, you know, unbaptized babies on the one hand, it seems like good company, or where else could purgatory in general you could have them burn off their wishy-washiness and be like it's sinful but it's not that yeah and being like these people are in a higher Um, rank than like the virtuous pagans like that's what i I find this whole like so strange like and they're getting punished like in a horrible way like yeah but they're not really at a higher they're not really at a higher rank at all i mean yeah they're 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 not they're not allowed in, right? So you think that the, the damned in hell are the worst of all, but actually these people are, are worse than that because hell won't even accept them. Hell won't have them. So <laughs> heaven won't have them, right? They're, they're, too, they're too uncommitted and neutral to have actually pitched the side of heaven, uh, but hell won't have them either uh, because, uh, and this is really a great moment in Inferno 3, uh, where, where Virgil explains that hell won't have them because uh, if if hell were to have them, then the damned would actually be able to put themselves above some group that's there. Uh, so the neutrals are the worst of all individuals, right? Hell won't have them. Heaven won't have them. They are uh, the worst of the worst, right? But we don't get to the bottom of the of the universe to to get the neutrals um, because they they don't even get a place uh, in this thing called hell. Um, this makes me think, um, very tempted by a kind of biographical read of this, like, what does it mean to be in exile from Florence when you've got the, you know, the party supporting the Pope on the one hand, the the Guelphs, and then the the Ghibellines are supporting the Holy Roman Emperor, and there are the white Guelphs and the black Guelphs, and then there's the Pope who, like, confusingly you'd think would be on the side of the, never mind, it gets very complicated, um, but it does seem like a, a time and place where, choosing sides is extremely important. Is it unfair to kind of read that in this direction and be like, he's being so medieval Italian <laughs> here by like, um, by by preferencing people who even chose the, the quote unquote wrong side over those who no, chose the No, I think that's right. And, and I think you're right. There's, there's a really personal component here where uh, Dante stuck to his choices, right? I mean, he, he stuck to, to the choices that he made. It, it meant being exiled. It meant you know, choosing never to return. He had his chances, as you said. He could have, you know, come back, paid the fine, admitted to being guilty of bribery. That was the trumped-up charge that he was convicted of and, you know, the, the pretext for his exile. He could have done all that, but he chose instead to honor his commitment, to, to stay true to himself, uh, but also to the causes that he believed in. And so I think there's really something that, that rankles him about an individual who tries to have it both ways, who refuses to really pick pick a side and, and stick to it. Um, and so the individual that we have uh, kind of most, uh, you know, prominently featured here is he who made the great refusal, 
we don't get his name. We don't. We don't. So you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, there's been plenty right. of of suggestions offered by scholars over the centuries of of who this individual could be. The consensus opinion is that this individual was a pope, um, and it was a, a pope who who abdicated, uh, right? Who who abdicated his papacy? We've actually had that in recent memory uh, coming again many centuries later, but. Uh, Benny, Benny, exactly, Benny, exactly. Yes. So, mm-hmm. uh, this Pope Celestine was was someone that Dante really admired. That that thought uh, he thought as a as a, as a Franciscan was someone who was going to lead the church in the right way and away from materialist and political concerns. That he that just really did not sit well with with Dante's view of the church being dedicated to spiritual things instead of. Uh, political power and and material possessions, uh, but Celestine gave it up and he uh, paved the path for Boniface VIII to take the papacy. And Boniface is the supervillain in all of Dante's Inferno. Notorious. He comes yeah, notorious. notorious. He comes up again and again, and and he's a supervillain because for Dante, he's the one who's just always interested in acquiring more land and power and money and is taking the church in exactly the wrong direction. Well, it seems like we're totally cured in sort of a U.S. American political context of finding fault with people who choose a, th- a third way um, or who align themselves as neutral. So, for example, I'm reminded of the critiques of Senator Kristen Cinema, who recently announced um, her new status as an, a political independent and disaffiliation from the same Democratic Party that paid all of the money so that she could win her election. Uh, I'm not I'm not sore about it at all, by the way. Um, so uh, here are some choice quotes uh, from the New York Times. This one is from Ian Danley, a progressive political consultant in Phoenix, who's, who wrote or said, everything she's done has been in the service of Kristen Cinema. There's really no other way to describe the decisions she makes. She cares about attention. She cares about setting herself up for the next thing. Um, these these wicked angels who were for themselves, um, per se, foro. And then um, from Alejandra Gomez, um, the executive director of Lucha, also quoted in the Times, we're not surprised that she would once again center herself. This is another unfortunate, selfish act. It is another betrayal. There have been a slew of betrayals, but this is one of the ultimates because voters elected her as a Democrat and she turned her back on those voters. So the um, conflation here of of uh, betrayal, of speaking of the structure of Dante's Inferno, right? This idea that it's worse than betrayal, that um, that seems to me to line up perfectly with this idea that the the mouth of hell would spit you back out. You're so repugnant because of your not choosing a side in this sort of two-sided system. What do we make? So instead of hell, of she dwells in Facebook Marketplace selling her used bike gear, as the Slate has reported today yesterday that she's she spends most of her time selling high-end athletic gear uh from her triathlons she's missing votes to go to triathlons in new zealand like anyway sorry amazing so there's a there it's interesting i mean there's a there's a long uh american history of reception of this particular idea of of dante's that about neutrality um so all the way back to 19th century abolitionists who are using this idea of neutrality to say pick a side uh we can't we can't abide by having this system of slavery any longer martin luther king jr speaking out against the war in vietnam saying uh uh saying stuff about dante and neutrality 
John F. Kennedy about Cold War picking a side, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, going going back to early 20th century. Roosevelt was kind of a reader of Dante. I'm going to plug my own work here and say, go to digitaldante.columbia.edu and you can find a piece uh, by me on Dante and, and, and Theodore Roosevelt as a reader of Dante. Uh, but, uh, right, so wow. all, all sorts of different ways of, of kind of looking at the American reception of this idea that neutrality is the worst possible stance to take. It, it is worse than picking the wrong side, right? No side at all is, is, is by far... Uh, the the most abominable and and right across a, a wide political spectrum you have this and so even as recently as 2020 in the wake of of the murder of George Floyd you have Gavin Newsom governor of California who used that line about Dante neutrality saying that we have to we have to act we have to pick a side we have to uh, come out against this this spate of police brutality. Yeah, how's, how's, how's Gavin's track record on funding the police? I wonder. Anyway, in terms of what, what Democrats do uh, and what they say, what their priorities are. Yeah. Um, Pretty words though, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like this whole thing has just become a political chestnut. That's you know, like this, like no one's going to Dante. They're like, well, like, well, let's, we've had, we have like five presidents who have said this, uh, you know, and MLK. So like we, we, it's time to it's time to recycle this one. So, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. It's, it's the I mean, unfortunate it's fate become, of great text. Yeah. It's be, it's become an American saying more than a Dantean one, and it's, and it's a misquoting, anyways, right? It's it's not actually right. It it was come up with um, by a, a preacher, actually. I think in the early twentieth century, there was a preacher who came up with this line. Dante once said that the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who, in a time of crisis, maintain their neutrality. But that's not what the text says, right? I mean, actually, it's worse than that. The neutrals don't have the hottest place in hell. They have no place in hell whatsoever. Uh, so it, it was it was misquoted, miscited, and then it, it took off like wildfire. I just want to say, the, in terms of like the actual, what happens to the people in the vestibule, they're in darkness they're chasing around a banner that constantly shifts and changes and they're being stung by flying insects who suck their blood and then they're running through the filth that drops from the maggots of these flies and and it's it's it's, it's incredibly disgusting i mean it's awful and this is for me you know it's it's really it's it is and and for me it's a question i had because i assume the vertical structure of the universe this sort of axis mundi of this of the whole thing like that this wouldn't be as bad as as say lower spheres of hell but i do take the point that being homeless or not having a place is 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 worse on some ways um i i'm tempted to press you though and say is it worse than is it worse than than lucifer's you know that satan's situation like or is it just is it apples and oranges like how do do you think about like you know the severity of of the punishments yeah and that's you know the and the severity i think really at least for me as a reader of Dante, as a teacher of, of, of this text, um, I, don't, I don't really find it being the, the, the case that it, it's you know, less severe uh, yeah. at the top and, and more severe down at the bottom. I think that's kind of, it, it ends up being really subjective, right? I mean, so it yeah. really depends on, on a little bit on you as, as a reader and a, and a, and a person. Do you, do you think it would be worse to you know, be stung and, and follow a flag for all of eternity? Or do you think it would be worse to be stuck in the ice and and uh not be able to wipe your own tears for all of eternity and i mean that's you know 
putting you in a, in a pretty terrible place, and I think Inferno really does that uh, many times, is it puts you in, in an awful place, experiencing the, the torments yourself in some way as you, as you read them. Um, and, and that's maybe kind of part of, right? Dante, Dante as a poet is, is, you know, coming up with these things uh, for a reason, uh, but he's also coming up with these things to, uh, to, to be a poet, to be, to be a creative poet, to, to do what hasn't been done. And sometimes he gets carried away with that. Uh, what's interesting to me about the, the punishment of the neutrals is that, by and large, the system of punishment is more about kind of you are going to be what you are, right? So there was kind of the, the, old, the old sort of uh, Jewish Kabbalistic tradition of uh, original sin not actually being sin at all, right? The curse that, that God gives to Adam and Eve after the eating of the fruit um, is actually just you're going to be what you are. That that is human nature, uh, after all. It's yeah. not. It's it, there's no there's no change actually, right? Oh, sorry. I was just saying that's what my my Irish Catholic family would always say is like you're yeah. not punished for your sins. You're punished by your sins. It's right. Sort of like the, the sort of chestnut right. of, of yeah and, morality. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And so like and so the lustful are are carried on by the winds of their desire. Right. It's just their their lust that is being kind of externally manifested and uh, and and experienced. Uh, in some way, uh, but in the case of the neutrals, it's it's a corrective punishment, right? They they are forced to choose a side in death, uh, something that they refuse to do in life, right? So they're stung and they have to follow this flag. You know, they have to they have to do it. They have to actually commit to this course, uh, which they which they refuse to do in life. And that's by far the minor key uh, in all of Inferno, right? These kind of corrective punishments as opposed to the externalized state of of what was done wrong final shade I need to throw the hottest place in hell shouldn't when we're talking about Dante maybe yeah. the coldest place in hell if we're going to talk about like an extreme of punishment but again I, I point taken that extremes of punishment seem less important than his I would say interesting and almost idiosyncratic notion of um, divine justice in Contrapasso because as you say it's not so much about the exact opposite or or a matching system but about how he understands what's behind like the motivation for or you know it depends on each canto and that you're in how exactly he understands what um justice should look like um anyway i wanted to move to um the gates of hell a little bit and i wanted to touch on something as a teaser for our next episode (laughs) more or less um so we have this these gates of hell in, erected that that declare things right. A very a, a very short quote from the gates uh, reads: "Justice urged on my high maker. My maker was divine authority, highest wisdom, and primal love." Yeah. What do we What do we make? I mean, sure, justice. Lots of sense that hell itself or the gates of hell would be constructed by the principle of divine justice. You did good things, you did bad things, you are, you know, whatever. There's some sort of righteous judgment um, on the the part of God who, um, for reasons of human sin and angelic sin, creates this space. Fine. Okay, cool. Um, Divine power, certainly involved here. Wisdom, sure. Talk to me about divine love. Primal love. Interesting. Um, Il primo amore. What are we talking about here? Are we in a Christian worldview? Are we in a Greek one? Are we somewhere in between? What's going yeah, on? I Orient mean, us. It's, it's Let's talk. All of the above, and then 
in addition to that, we've got Dante, who was prior to writing Inferno and continued to be in the writing and in exile and, and was to the end of his life. He was a love poet. He, and and that's, that is a part of him that is retooled and repurposed as he as he writes the divine comedy in various ways this is one of them you know how do you take that idea of of personal and personalized love and expand it outward to to a, a universal order and cosmological order uh, but how do you also maintain that personal core uh, so you know we're, we're gonna have beatrice talk about love prior to this right and this is inferno three in inferno two we have we have a scene that that they needs to be motivated to continue his journey, even though he just started it. And Virgil has to give him, give him a speech uh, about how actually Beatrice came to to him, uh, and and she saw that Dante was in trouble, and she is the one who is saving him. Dante is the damsel in distress. Beatrice is the uh, the the saving knight, if you will. Right, lots of gender things to unpack there. But she says that love moved me. Um, so. What does Beatrice mean when she says love? What does it mean that right after that, basically, our next moment in the text is this inscription on the gate of hell and primal love as being a component in the creation of hell? Uh, you know, we, we actually, at the end of the canto, when, when people are, when the, the damned souls are, uh, are, are, are crowding uh, the shore and waiting to be ferried across uh, by, by Karen, the, the ferryman, uh, retooled again from the Greco-Roman tradition, right? But but can but Karen is called a demon, right? So and that's that's kind of a, a moment of how Dante is fusing these two cultures, right? So you've got the Greco-Roman figure of Karen, um, and he's called Karen the demon, right? So putting the Greco-Roman and Christian together in that way, uh, and but we actually have the specification that the souls want to go across. Uh, they they are moved by the desire to go and and. You know, assume their their rightful place, and what what do we make of that? What does that mean in terms of desire and will and this thing called love, um, right? So all of that is kind of orienting us to uh, Dante's multifaceted representation of love throughout the Divine Comedy. Quick note on the idea of like Karen as demon and this like Greco-Roman, yeah, gods, demigods, etc., being recast that way. We have seen if you listen to our earlier episodes, you'll you'll hear us talk a little bit about that tradition for Augustine and others that there was this um, through this word daimonia, there was this way to explain the universe that people came from in a, a <laughs> straight up demonizing way to say oh yeah we know about those powerful figures that you've worshipped in the past they do have a place in the cosmogony over here it's just yeah. not the well, good place and even, but even right? the neoplatonists so. would also refer to these beings as as demons you know the heroes and and, and those words were, could be categorized depending on the thinker as a kind of daimon but you know shorn of the kind of moralizing valence that the christians bring to it and yeah. they sort of have inherited yeah 
It, right, and that's what sort of greases the wheels, right? Is that you have that word, and then the the um, the context of the word shifts, and it becomes this other thing associated yeah. with hell. And well, and, and, on, and on that point, um, I mean, it's important where you know we're we're one, would we make our move from Inferno three to Inferno four? We we go into the first circle of hell, but the first circle of hell is we've already touched on a tiny bit is limbo. Travis, you you talked about unbaptized infants. That's what it was theologically made for right that's what what the tradition of limbo is is we can't stomach the thought of babies being punished for eternity so here's a place without punishment they can't be saved because they haven't been baptized but at the very least we don't have to think about them suffering for all of time Uh, but Dante doesn't have so much of an interest in the babies as he does in creating a place of honor for the non-Christian cultural other that is that has contributed something to the growth of human civilization. So we have the the, the greats of the Greco-Roman past, and we have a couple of Muslim philosophers in there, and we, we have this way of, of thinking not just about demonizing the other side, but actually how to how to valorize uh, what what certain individuals have have contributed across cultural and religious boundaries. The other thing when I see primal love, just like one more on that that idea, I also think of earlier things we've done like with Tertullian, where the spectation, you know, looking upon the suffering of the damned is to the delight of the saved from from heaven. Uh, I'm not sure that's exactly what he has in mind here, but this idea that there is a there's a emotional gratification to the operation of the divine justice that is of benefit and of 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 like emotional benefit and joy for for the people higher up in the the cosmic hierarchy and so that's that's one that's one connection i make i'm not sure it's the answer to what it could possibly mean that hell was made to torture people out of love but but yeah it's it's a one place my mind goes and i think i can make more sense of purgatory of having desire for the one desire for god Kind of makes sense in that it's returning you in that neoplatonist kind of cyclical direction back to the one at least at the end of that you know you're you know you're headed to the thing that was your source etc and so i can kind of get that um but in hell it just becomes more complicated the connection between divine justice and love and if you had that desire uh to submit to punishment you know does is that something that changes with death or is that something that was always there and sort of clouded over in some way let's leave that as a teaser we'll have more discussion on that hopefully um in our next episode where we'll talk a little bit more about love desire gender sex sexuality it's going to be amazing stay tuned um for now i want to talk a little bit about hell's eternity um just very briefly this idea that um so again we're at the gate it's got this inscription speech thing Before me, nothing but eternal things were made. And here we have, I think, an echo of the prologue to the Gospel of John here. Um, Yeah, I think that's that particular line is what that is. And I endure eternally, abandon every hope, abandon all hope, voi quintrate, those who enter here. Um, What's going on theologically with this idea that is is hell eternal? What happens to people who go to hell, etc.? Um, and Augustine, and I'm drawing on Teodolinda Barolini here. Um, the eternity of hell was debated. Um, this idea, of course, Origen, whom we've talked about before, it's hard to have access to exactly what Origen thought because of textual difficulties, reception, the fact that he gets declared a heretic means it's hard to preserve what his actual thoughts were. But we believe 
left open the possibility in some readings of his text that even Satan could be saved and thus it, hell didn't have eternity. But Augustine gets all Bible thumpy and looking to uh, one of the sayings from of um, of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, I think. Yeah. Um, Out of my sight, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. Mic drop, Augustine is done with that argument. I don't know. What do we think? Does this matter, um, this idea of whether or not hell lasts forever and ever, or is there for a particular temporal purpose? I'm Klaus, did you have any thoughts about that? Um, Yeah, I mean, one way to connect it to the love thing would be an originist reading, which is to say that ultimately this will all, because people are like actually desirous of being punished and finding their right home, that this is all going to uh, work out in a way that everyone's reconciled over the course of the ages or whatever. I'm not sure. I I think there's probably evidence that goes against that with internal to the text. I I do think that I recall like references to the eternity of what's happening there. Um, But that's, that could could be one way to, to make sense of it. It's interesting that again, this sort of maybe the reading the text in a somewhat subversive way, like, the, the pilgrim gets to traverse all of the stages of hell and see it like the, it's sort of, it's that puts into question the kind of the stagnancy and eternality of it. If it can sort of be passed through the way he has. And I think just the, the very motion of the, of the comedy sort of calls into question the, the sort of the eternality of, of, of damnation because it's part of his moral and spiritual journey. And so like, if it can be that, then can it be that for other people too? I mean, I think that's sort of one of the questions that raises. Yeah, definitely. And and there's physical change that that we actually see throughout Dante's infernal journey, right? I mean, he can affect yeah. things, Crumbles right? He can and stuff. exactly right yeah. ruins of rocks and things. And so yeah. there there are all sorts of ways to kind of parse that eternity, right? But I mean, and, and really kind of eternity as eternal duration, as opposed to kind of a more philosophical notion of eternity as being completely outside of time and space. And that's something that Dante get, is going to get into uh, when we get up to, to Paradiso, uh, right? So there are these kind of dueling notions of, of what it means to be eternal. Uh, and, you know, we can we can even kind of think about ideas of eternity that come through in uh Inferno 15, when Dante stages an encounter with his dear, beloved mentor, Brunetto Latini. We'll talk more about that on the gender sexuality episode for sure. But uh, but Brunetto, uh, uh, Dante thanks Brunetto for, for uh, teaching him how man makes himself eternal. What, what Dante means by that is that Brunetto taught him about writing and, and rhetoric poetry. and things like that and poetry and and, and right so I mean it, it is kind of a way for him to just toot his own horn but also to think about this idea of how we last beyond ourselves beyond the the span of our human lives and uh, and there's something about that as well uh, with regard to the eternity of hell uh, when we get to purgatory then then it's really about uh, what you were talking about uh, in terms of origin right I mean this this system in which 
you are able to correct yourself over time. It might take a long, long time, it might take centuries, but you are eventually going to be able to refine yourself to the point of being deemed worthy to ascend to to the stars, right? To paradise. And uh, and, and purgatory is the one, one realm uh, that we encounter in Dante's vision that is not eternal, right? That is this temporally bound, that is going to stop existing uh, after judgment, according to Dante's cosmology, right? And so that's something that has enormous implications for Catholicism in the wake of that. But, right, I mean, just purgatory wasn't a fleshed out concept before uh, Dante came, came along and, and did his own thing with it. So we're, we're going to skip around a little bit to the gates of Dis. We've got another set of gates, right? Where this is set of gates number two. Am I right about That's that? More friends? gates, more angels. More gates, more angels. Cantos eight and nine. We have some, I wanted to go here because we have some demonic content. So we've got the city, right? We're, um, we're going, you know, levels in, right? I like to think about Inferno as a, as a kind of video game. And this is inspired by Klaus's... Um, <laughs> Uh, re- reference to Lucifer as the big boss and then the mini bosses. Um, it's like Bowser. Like totally amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally Bowser. So we've got this problem with progress, right? As the pilgrim Dante tries to, with Virgil, go through into various layers. And at this moment, we're trying to enter the city of Dis and the demons inside are refusing entry to Dante and Virgil. Um, and we need a deus ex machina here in the form of an, an angel. What's going on here? We don't have a, a lot of detail about the demons. I'm curious, of course, about demons. This is a podcast on the history of the devil. We don't get lots of detail about them. We get some detail on the Furies who look down because, you know, we love us some Greek myths. I mean, like Italy, you know, obsession with Greek things. Anyway, whatever. Um, looking down and summoning Medusa to turn the poets to stone. Like, whoa, harsh, right? Another liminal space, another moment of crossing over and the difficulty in the progress and who are these, who are these figures, these characters that we encounter? Yeah, I mean, and they're figures that are uniquely empowered to halt that progress, right? I mean, up until that point, we've gone from one level to another without really any trouble. There have been guardian monsters, there have been, you know, individuals who have tried to stand in the way and... Virgil, right, Dante's choice of, of guide for this journey is, is an important one in this regard, right? Because most of these most of these monsters and guardians that we've come across uh, up until now, all of them actually have been oriented towards the Greco-Roman tradition. So Virgil knows how to deal with the three-headed dog Cerberus, no problem. He knows how, what to say to Karen. He knows what to, to do when, when he's confronted with these individuals. Uh, he says the right thing. He does the right thing. Uh, and they and they go on their way, right? He he is he is the ideal uh, video game guide in that regard, right? He's that he's that button you push, and 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 all is solved. He's the princess, right? I mean, she's everyone knows yes, the princess is that's the right, character. That's right, right? Let's be let's be honest. So you get the princess, but it's like a princess that only works for our Greco-Roman. Yeah, exactly, right? So suddenly we have a new problem. We have the fallen angels. We have demons that are not, right, that kind of, you know, Greek use of the term daemonia, right? This is a little bit different from that. This, this, is, this is much more Christian than that. Fallen angels who have this interesting system of communication, right? We have this kind of light light of uh, a torch and, and the, the people at the wall are going to be able to see it, right? So it's kind of this, this interesting warning system or you know early detection system that we have kind of put in play here 
and, and then and then they can't Virgil Virgil says what he's been saying uh, we've this journey is willed from on high we we have a right to get through the gates and not so much right what worked before doesn't work this time and and so as you said Deus Ex Machina required and and once again I mean that Deus Ex Machina is really a spectacular one right you have the descent of this angelic figure uh who who comes along and looks at everything in disdain and says yeah you you can't touch me you you have no power over me and as much as as Virgil has been trying to get them through the gates all it takes for this angel is a little touch of a wand uh, a little little wand at that right the italian term is vergetta so not just a, a big you know stick of a of a thing that he uses to bash the gate in but just a little a little wand a little touch of a wand and and the door opens and the journey goes on i i find it interesting that the the Greco-Roman characters are much more fleshed out in terms of the monsters. Like we have the Furies, we have uh, the Gorgons, Medusa. The fallen angels are on the one hand like very vividly inscribed in the imaginations of a Christian theologically literate audience. And yet they, they kind of just are in the background. They're sort of almost like this ominous crowd that sort of like has gathers about but is we don't have like very vivid descriptions of particular angels. They're sort of just like a, a, a you know, massa domnata, you know, they're, they're sort of just like there like yeah. as a crew. And the, I love this scene because it's, I think it's the first time, maybe you can correct me. The only time we really see like Virgil really stressed out and afraid himself. It, 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 he's, he's, and he's worried about, about the pilgrim becoming afraid because he's afraid and they're both afraid. They're both worried about making each other more afraid and uh, yeah. it, it does really feel like a moment of real, of real risk and tension in a way that he, as you were saying, he he's able to, to manage everything before with his cheat code, and and now it, it, he's like freaking out, and he's like he's and it's at, at the point where it's like you can't look at the you you know he's he's giving he's giving Dante or the Pilgrim these instructions, you can't look at the the Gorgon, you're going to be turned to stone. And there's yeah. some sort of allegory, in, you know, encoded in this that, you know, like let the let the careful reader take note here, you know, kind of wink, wink, sort of yeah. thing about what I'm what I'm trying to say. But yeah, I find like the, the high tension and high stakes really interesting, the relative anonymity of the angels interesting, and this like apparently this is all supposed to be uh, some sort of moral message about or or po- political allegory. I'm I'm not really sure. Right, and and there's reason. I mean, there, there's a reason to not be sure. I mean, it can be spun in so many different directions, and lots of lots of scholars have over over the many years uh, taken this one way or another. But yeah, I mean, one one thing that really does uh, signify here is that Virgil is uh, yeah his failure is is emphasized. Right, this is the first time he's falling down on the job. What's also being emphasized is how close. Virgil and Dante are becoming right. I mean, how how much their relationship has grown in in a really short span of time. Um, so when when you have the encounter with the Furies and the threat of uh, summoning uh, Medusa's head, uh, Virgil tells Dante to look away uh, lest you be turned into stone. But whether it's because he doesn't trust Dante to do what he tells him, or because he he just wants to make double sure that that Dante is going to yeah. be okay he actually he actually uses his own hands to to cover Dante's eyes right I mean there's this kind of and thinking about that right I mean the 
bridging the gap between life and death, between, you know, a Roman poet uh, at the beginning of, of the first century and uh, someone who's in the 14th century uh, is, is really quite quite remarkable, right? I mean, there's this kind of tender moment between uh, yeah. poet, poet, and, and, and poet, uh, right? Guide and, uh, and, and student that, uh, that really means yeah. something. Uh, and then, I mean, yeah. Dante being shut out of a city um, is surely... Uh, a way of kind of thinking about the mass of Florentines who have expelled him from the city never to return. And right, there's a way of kind of thinking about that experience of exile, the trauma of of exile that's being represented here too. The city that's described as having like mosque-like turrets too. So we sort of get into, even though we've had some more yeah. uh, positive associations with, with uh, Muslim characters, the the specter of like the the foreign evil enemy city sort of like through these kind of islamic phobic imagery sort of comes up yeah absolutely this is this is an islamophobic moment no question about that yeah yeah and it's also the same thing where in like when when cortez and the spanish were were uh conquering what's now mexico they 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 referred to Aztec and other indigenous religious sites as mosques and assumed that there was some sort of uh, Indo-American Islam being practiced there. It's sort of this interesting like assumption about, about, uh, about cultural foreignness and stuff. Yeah, definitely. No, it's, I mean, painting, painting the enemy with the same brush. I wanted to just briefly mention that here, this, this difficulty in, in passing through this, this second set of gates we have the deus ex machina here, who also um, Barolini points out in her commentary, which you can also find on Digital Dante. Great site, so awesome. Also recalls Jesus Christ, of course, as the, the God who, in the harrowing of hell, busts open the gates of hell. And that's referred to as well, of course, here. We've got the open gates at the, at the entrance, which has got to be like a sore point yeah. for the demons here who want to guard the entrance. They want that kind of... Um, you know, thou shalt not pass power. If there's oh, anything, specific there's so much about Lord them, of the Rings. They, going they on seem here. to have a little so pride. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a lot. I think Dante probably read Lord. That's of the how. Rings. That's, that's the way it works. That's the way it works. Really yeah. up on. That's right. That's right. Not vice. That's not vice right, versa. That direction. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> Tolkien invented everything. <laughs> he retconned <Yeah>. it. <laughs> <laughs> Join us next time for the second part of our conversation with Dr. Akash Kumar as we continue to unseal the Dante files and get more cheat codes for the video game The Life from Virgil, Beatrice, and the rest of the gang. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.